All right. Well, guys, it is such an honor and a privilege to <coughs> be with you this morning. <coughs> if you are visiting with us, if this is your first time, we're so glad that you're here today in Austin, Texas. It's great weather today. Amen. It was awesome. You guys should be in a good mood. Texas won yesterday. All right. So y'all got no excuse not to be in a good mood today. <laughs> it's good to be in Austin, Texas. We're actually going to learn today that, um, that we're here in Austin because God planned that for us, which is pretty cool. And you're going to see the implications of that. But uh, I want to invite you, if you brought a copy of the scripture, to open up your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 17. If you don't have one, <clears throat> like a physical Bible, because a lot of people don't carry those anymore, if you just have it on your iPad, that's fine. Unless you're in the first couple rows, don't do that, because that freaks me out, because um, I see the light, and it, I've got ADD, and so don't do that. But anybody else, feel free to do that. And, uh, but open up your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 17, <clears throat> and we're... Um, we're finishing our series that we're calling The Art of Neighboring. <coughs> and um, we're going to start, this is our last week we're doing that. And next week, um, we're actually starting a brand new sermon series that will be in for a while. Uh, one of the things that we do at our church, and we've done it since the very first Sunday of the Austin Stone, is we've gone verse by verse through books of the Bible. And we've been, every once in a while we'll stop, we'll do a series, uh, a sermon series that we think God is leading us to do for the body. But vast majority of the time we're preaching what's called expositionally because we believe that the power in preaching doesn't come through our words but the word of God. And next week we start the book of Exodus, which we're really excited about. <clears throat> Harlem Suh, which is down the front row, one of our preaching pastors has been bugging me since day one to do a series on the book of Exodus. We're starting it tomorrow, or not tomorrow, but next Sunday. Uh, y'all can come back tomorrow if you want to. Harlem will be preaching, not me. But um, we're excited about it. It's, we grew up and when we think about Exodus, we think about that it's just this group of cool stories about God and, and, and the Israelites. But what we realize is it's not just a group of stories, but the Bible as a whole is one story. It's the story of God uh, pursuing a rebellious people and bringing us to himself. And, and one of the things that I learned when preaching through the book of Genesis was that the gospel leaps off the pages of the Old Testament. Uh, the story of Christ leaps off the pages of the Old Testament, and you're going to see that in the book of Exodus. You're going to understand Jesus probably better than you ever have after we're done with Exodus. And so that's next Sunday. Um, I'll be preaching here, and so I, I, I'm, I'm excited about it and hope you will be too. <clears throat> but we're finishing our series on the art of neighboring. We've been looking at what Jesus said was the greatest commandments, which are to love God, Pardon me, just cough, man. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And we've been talking about how Jesus' whole point to him saying that those are the two greatest commandments were that you can't separate loving God from loving people. You know, it's entirely possible to go out there and love people but not love God. But what Jesus is saying is that it's impossible to love God and then not in turn demonstrate your love for God by the way that you love people. And that's what this series has been about. Hopefully it's been good for you. But I want to finish our series today looking at a little bit different angle about this. And, and I want to look at three quick sections of scriptures, a very fast sermon today. One's in the book of Acts, one's in the book of Psalms, and one is in the book of Ephesians. And I'll, I'll look at those, I want to look at those specific section of verses for this reason. <clears throat> because I think the temptation for a lot of us is when we hear a sermon or a sermon series on loving our neighbor, 
I think the temptation, we hear that, maybe we get a little convicted. We think, you know what? That's, that's something I need to do better at. I need to go out those doors. I need to love my neighbor. I need to become a better neighbor lover. I think that's kind of our response. We go, I need to do that. But one of the things that I've realized as I look at the text is I realize that demonstrating our love for God by the way that we love the people around us, and we talked about a couple weeks ago, and Tyler talked about this, is, is that is having compassion. When we see a need, we don't just feel bad about it, but we do something about it. Us doing that is not just something that we ought to do when we have time to do it. It's not just something that we, it's a, a cool concept in the scripture that if, if we can fit it into our schedule, we, we ought to do it. But loving our neighbor, loving God and loving our neighbor is literally something we're going to see in the text today that we were created for. We're, we're going to see today that it's something that God has designed for you. It's something that he planned for you and shaped for you for your life from literally before the foundation of the world, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. <clears throat> so Acts chapter 17, verse 16, here's the first verse I want to show you about how we're going to kind of t- uh, connect through the text. Loving our neighbor is something that God has been planning for you from the foundation of the world. So Acts chapter 17, verse 16, listen to this. I'm going to read a couple of scriptures here. Just hang on to the story. It says, now... While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. And so he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And he also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idol babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be proclaiming strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you're proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. (coughs) Now all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Now look at verse 22. It says, so Paul stood up in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all aspects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So here's what's going on. Paul's in the city of Athens. And he's hanging out, and he's waiting for Timothy and Silas to show up. Those were his boys. And while he was there, he notices that the city of Athens has all these idols everywhere. These idols that they've built, and they, <coughs> they worship this idol, and they worship that idol, and they worship this God, and they worship that God. Um, and, and the reason that they did that, they had so many different gods and idols that they worshiped, is that the city of Athens probably figured, they were very spiritual, they probably figured, well, there's probably a God, but we just don't know who he is. And so we're going to make all these different idols, and we hope we get the right one. To the point that they even make an idol that they they call it to an unknown God. And that was their way of saying basically that we're going to worship all these gods, but just in case we missed one, we got it covered. We got it covered. And what Paul does is he comes into the city, and he's looking around, and he's seeing all these idols that they worship, and he stands up in the Areopagus, which is the place that they met and kind of taught. And he kind of raises his hand and he says, yes, as a matter of fact, you guys have missed a God. And he's a really important God. And the reason he's a really important God is because he's the only God. And let me tell you about him. 
And then so Paul begins to preach and he begins to describe to them the one true God, which is the God that we worship. Now, when Paul does that, I want you to listen carefully to how Paul describes God to these people. Because it gives us a ton of insight into our own lives. It gives us a ton of insight, believe it or not, into how and why we're called to love our neighbors. And so check this out in verse 23. He says, when I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar to this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And in verse 24, he starts describing God. He says, the God who made the world, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord, he's Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. He says, there's one God. He's the one that made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord. He's the Lord of heaven and he's the Lord of earth. And he doesn't dwell in these temples and these idols that you've made with human hands. In verse 25, he says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. So God's all sufficient. He doesn't need us. And then watch what he says here. He says, and since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And so the first thing that Paul does when he's describing to these people about the one true God, he says, I want you to know something. There's only one God. He created the earth and he gave you life. Paul said to everybody in Athens there, you need to understand something. It's this one true God. He is the one that gave you your life. He gave you your life. He gave you your breath. And he gave you everything that you have. Now, watch what Paul says next about the Lord. This is really, this is an awesome verse. In verse 26, he says, And he made from one man, that's Adam. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. God made from one man, that's Adam, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined, that's a past tense verb, having determined in the past their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Okay, now look at, look at the last part of that verse there. This is what, the, what, what Paul says about God. He says, God, in some time in the past, determined every man, he determined a couple of things, their appointed time and the boundary of their habitation. Here's what that means, church. That not only did God give you your life, he's the one that gave it to you. Not only did God give you your breath, but what he's saying is that some point in time in the past, God made the decision. God determined when you were going to live, and God determined not only that, but he determined where you were going to live. And that's pretty, that's pretty awesome when you, when you take just a second to, to dwell on that and think about that. That at some point in time, in eternity past, listen to this, that at some point in time, in eternity past, God was sitting there being God, and he was thinking about you. That at some point in time in eternity past, God was specifically thinking about you. And while he was sitting there thinking about you, he was not just thinking these kind of random scattered thoughts. What the scripture is saying is that he was actually planning and he was determining when you would live in the course of history. And not only when you would live in the course of history, but where you would live in the course of history. And, I, and listen, man, if, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever read that verse or thought deeply about that verse or thought about the implications of that, but here's what that means, church, today, for you. 
is that you do not live in Austin, Texas by accident. You live in Austin, Texas by the grace of God. Amen? That's what that's saying. what, What the implications of the text are is that you don't live in the greater Austin area because this is where you happen to get a job and find yourself in 2015. This, what, the, what the implications of this text are uh, for you college students is you don't, you don't go to college here in Austin because that's kind of where you just thought would be the best place to go to college and that's where you got accepted. <clears throat> what the Holy Spirit inspired word of God is saying to you and me is that you and I live in the greater Austin area in 2015 because that is when and where God specifically determined you would live your life. All right, so I want, you to, I want you to categorize that, keep that in mind, catalog that, and then we're just going to jump now to the second group of verses that kind of show us that this, this commandment to love God and, and love our neighbor is not just some random thing we do if we have time, but it's something God has been planning for us from the foundation of the world. If you want to, turn with me to Psalms chapter 139. Psalms chapter 139, verse 14. First thing we've learned while you turn there is that God before we were ever born, determined when we were going to live and where we were going to live. Psalms 139, verse 14. This is King David speaking. He's, He's praying specifically to God, and he's thinking about how God made him. He's thinking about how God was the one that created him. And listen to what he says about this Uh, the Lord's creation of him. This is a great verse, Psalms 139, 14. King David says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You didn't just throw me together, God. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. David says, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. In verse 15, he says, my frame was not hidden from you, When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. And then look at verse 16. David says, God, your eyes saw my unformed substance. That's awesome. That when you were being conceived in the womb, God saw you. He knew you. Before you were were, were, were completely formed. He saw your unformed substance. Now watch what he says. David says, and in your book were written. God, in your book were written, every one of them. What was written? What was, God, David says, there was something that was written in your book, God. Every one of them, what does he say? He says, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. See what David just said. And David just said, God, you formed every single one of my days before I ever lived one of them. That's amazing. God, you formed every single one of my days before I ever lived one of them. Now, the the key to understanding the power of that verse is in the word formed. The word formed is the Hebrew word yasar. It's yasar. And it's the exact same word that's used to describe the actions of a potter um, when he is molding and shaping a piece of clay. And so if you've ever seen that, when, when you've got a potter and that wheel thing is turning and, and he gets water in his hands and he, and he basically forms and he shapes that what was just a lump of clay into something at the end of it with his hands that's now is a beautiful piece of art. Is, and that's the word that's used. It's the exact same word. 
King David is saying, here's, here's what happened, <clears throat> is that, God, you saw my unformed substance, and then before I was ever even born, you got your hands on my days, and you shaped and you fashioned and you formed every single solitary one of my days in the same way that a potter would a piece of clay. And that's pretty awesome. But hold on, it, it even gets better than that. In, in Psalms 139 verse 16, he says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. And the thought of that hit David. He's like, that's unbelievable that you did that, God, that you were, you were thinking that much of me, that not just a couple of my days, not just the important days in my life, not just the hard days or the great days, but every one of my days, you were the one that was forming them. <clears throat> and, he, and he starts kind of worshiping. He says, how precious are your thoughts, uh, oh God. How precious to me are those thoughts, oh God. And then he says, how vast are the sum of them. It kind of hits David. He's like, man, God, you didn't just think about me a couple of times. You didn't just think about me once. But God, if you formed every single one of my days the way a potter would a clay, you thought about me a lot. And then he, and he says how much? In, in verse 18, he says, if I were to count them, they are more than the sand. They're more than the sand. He said, not only did you, you form like a potter would a clay every one of my days, but David says, if I think about how often it is that you thought of me to make that happen, it would outnumber the sand. And I thought about getting some sand up here, and I forgot to ask Tyson to do that, and so I apologize for not having some sand. But if you can imagine that I'm holding up a handful of sand, <coughs> it's estimated that there are a million grains of sand in one handful. And so you pick up, go to the beach, you pick up a handful of sand and you just pour it out really slowly there's like a million grains of sand and so if that's just one handful of sand imagine how many um, grains of sand would be on a beach there's a lot of handfuls of sand on the beach on a beach it's trillions and trillions and trillions and imagine if how many grains are sand on one beach imagine how many grains of sand are in all the beaches in the world and what David is saying is that as the spirit of God reveals to him that God formed and fashioned every one of his days, it kind of hits him how often God had been thinking about him before he was even born. And he says, God, it, it, it's crazy, but you've been thinking about me more times than I can count before I was ever even born. That's powerful. That's powerful. And I think it begs a question for all of us today because it's true for us. I think the question that that brings to mind is this, is, is why? 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 Why did God think about you so much in eternity past? Why, why did, before you were ever even born, why did God determine the, um, your allotted time that you would live in history? Why did he determine the boundary of your habitation why did he do that? Why did, why did God shape and form every single one of your days before you ever lived one? Why did God think about you specifically? He's God for crying out loud. <clears throat> why did he think about you so often that if you were to count him, it would outnumber the sand of the seashore? I mean, guys, was he just bored? I mean, did he, did he just have nothing else better to do? I think we hear things like that. It's hard for us to believe that about us because I think some of, some, so many of us, we would never admit it, but we think 
kind of just in the places, subconscious places of our heart and mind, we think that our birth was just an accident or that our birth kind of caught God off guard and we were born when God's like, oh, okay, a new one. And then and maybe he planned some stuff for our life, but that's not at all what the scripture's saying at all. That God's had his hand on your days, every one of them before you were born. And, and the question is why? And the answer to that question, believe it or not, is found in Ephesians chapter two. It's, it's just a really, really simple verse and there's just a couple of words, but in that couple of words is found the answer to why God would spend that much time in eternity thinking just about you. In Ephesians 2.10, if you want to turn there, you can, but just really quickly, let me read it to you. It's the answer to why God spent all that time on your life. Paul says, for we are his workmanship. For we are his workmanship. That word workmanship, I've always hated the way they translate that in English. They always translate it workmanship, but you know what the Greek word for work that they use right there in the Greek, you can go look it up. It's the Greek word poema, poema. We get the English word poem from that Greek word. Literally what Paul is saying is you are his poem. You're his poem. You're, you're You're his music. You're his lyric. You're his melody. You're his rhyme. You're his work of art. For we are his poema. Watch what it says next because it gives us the answer why he does this. And we were created in Christ Jesus. We were created in Christ Jesus. Not only did he give you life, did he give you breath, did he give you all things, but it says we were created in Christ Jesus. That means he saves us in Christ through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. Our sins are forgiven. We're reconciled back to God. So he makes us a new creation. So not only creates you once, but he creates you again. And why does he do that? It says we were created in Christ Jesus for something. It says we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Real simple. Why did God spend all that time? <clears throat> Why did he put his hands on us? We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. If you pinned me down and you made me give the answer, what are the good works he's talking about? I would, I would tell you this. I would say those are the two greatest commandments that Jesus gave us. We're to love God in our days. And we're to love our neighbor. For we are his poema, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Watch this which God prepared beforehand. Psalm 139, Acts 17, which, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's purpose. That's purpose. Here's what the Bible is saying, that God spent all this time creating you and forming you for this purpose that you would walk in the good works that he prepared for you before you were ever born. Now in light, here's, here's I think where I kind of, I want to go today and, and I don't have much left in the sermon, but I just want to kind of apply this and so I want us to think about this. Is that in light of everything we just learned in the scripture, in light of everything we just saw in Acts chapter 17 and Psalms 139 and then Ephesians 2 and everything. It, it, let me ask you this, that from, from eternity past, do you really think, do you really think that from eternity past when God was thinking his millions and millions of thoughts towards you, when he was dreaming of you, 
when he was forming you, when, when he was determining for you when you would live and where you would live, when he was carefully constructing every single one of your days, when he was preparing beforehand the poem of your life, when he was preparing beforehand the good works that you were created to walk in, here's the question. Do you really think that God's big, eternal dream for you was to place you in Austin, Texas in 2015 just so that you could get a job, buy a house, fill up your 401k, retire on a beach somewhere, get really good at golf and die? You really think that's all God could come up with? Do you really think that that's God's eternal plan for your life. In light of everything we've seen today in the text, and for those of you that believe in in, in the word of God, which I believe every word of the word of God is true, for those of you that believe the word of God is true, is that it? College students that are here, I know there's a lot of you. Is, Is that it? Was that God's big, eternal determination for your four five, six, seven years here at UT is for you to, you know, join a sorority or fraternity and go to a few football games and a few date parties and, and maybe, you know, find a husband or a wife and, and make a 3.5 and move to Dallas and go work for Chase Bank until you die. You think that's it? You see, I believe that as God was thinking of his millions and millions of thoughts of you, as God was carefully constructing every single one of your days the way a potter would his clay, I think the scripture is very, very clearly saying that loving God and loving your neighbor was the plan. Loving God, loving the Lord, walking out those doors and loving the people that God has placed in our lives was not just something the Bible is suggesting we do if we feel like we have time for it, but I'm convinced it is literally what you and I were created to do. And when God was forming your days, that's what he was forming you for. And can I just make a statement? And, and you know, if you really don't hear anything I say today, I'd love for you to just kind of hear this. I believe in light of the text today, that you and I will never truly live, that you and I will never truly live until we are living for what we were created to live for. Think about that. We'll never truly live until you and I are living for what we were created to live for. And some of you already discovered this. I would say maybe most of us in some level have already discovered this, maybe never thought about it or maybe you would never admit it but I think there's so many of us that if we're just completely honest there's some person or there's some thing that we have that we think deep down in places we don't uh, want to admit or talk about that we think if we <clears throat> if we can just get that or have that or do this thing or experience this or get to this place whatever it is great house great job perfect body perfect spouse perfect wife have kids retire, whatever it is. We, there's so many things we look at and we think that's where it's going to be. That's where life's going to be found. I'm going to find peace there, happiness there. Life will chill out there. Life will get good there. And you get that thing and, and, you, and you finally achieve that thing and you wake up one day and there's this 
this part of your heart that knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that even though I have this thing I thought would give me life, there's got to be more to life than this. And you just spend, it's like, it's like a, the horse going after the carrot. We, we either never get it, and so we think we miss it, or we get it, and we realize it doesn't satisfy us, but we spend our whole lives going after things that do not have the ability to give us life. And the reason that is is because you were never created to find life in any other thing but Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? You were formed and fashioned and shaped by God to find life in what you were created for, which is in Ephesians 2.10. You are his workmanship. And you were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. I saw this illustrated in a, in a really dramatic and very sad fashion. I hate to end this message kind of on a downer note and the story's a downer, but about 10 years ago, uh, I got a call from a person that was attending our church. This person had just been going for a few weeks and she'd found out that her brother <clears throat> had committed suicide. They didn't have a pastor, so they asked if I would do the, I would do the funeral. And, um, and before the funeral, they gave me a, uh, a journal of his. And um, they he'd been keeping it for a couple of years and they didn't know what was in it and they were kind of afraid to read it because they didn't know what it was going to say and so they asked me if I would read that journal and, and decide for them if they should read it or if there was anything in there that might be good for the funeral and so I said I would and, and so a couple nights before the funeral I, I got the journal out sat in my chair and, um, and I just read the whole thing I, I think I stayed up all night reading it it was fascinating just to kind of get a look inside of a young man that had taken his own life and just what was going on in his heart and what was going on in his mind. And it was one of the saddest things I'd, I'd ever read because it was just a story. It was like reading the book of Ecclesiastes. It was just a story of this young man in his 20s who had tried everything in life and couldn't find peace and couldn't find happiness and thought life was going to be here. It wasn't. Find, thought peace and satisfaction and contentment and joy would be here and it wasn't. And it was interesting because he was a surfer and he loved to surf and, and he had heard that in Costa Rica there was great surfing and, and so he and a buddy moved to Costa Rica and, and he went there and he was happy for a little while and he would surf and do his thing and, 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 and through all this time he, would, he would, was trying to decide if he wanted to pursue God and he didn't and, and he ends up realizing that life isn't in Costa Rica and so he comes back home and, and eventually takes his life. And, and I was doing the funeral and I... I Doing the funerals of people that commit suicide are very difficult. And I, I said a lot of good things about him and, and tried to encourage his family and, and point people to the gospel of Jesus during that funeral. But when it was over, um, I, I, there was like a song, <coughs> a couple of people that talked, there was a song, and then I was supposed to get up and, and pray at the end of the song, and then the funeral was going to be done. And right as the song, I mean, right as the song was ending, I feel this tap on my shoulder and I look back, and this guy, I don't know who he was. He said, hey, my name's so-and-so. I was this guy's best friend, and I didn't have the courage to speak. But I'd like to speak before the funeral was over. And it kind of scared me because I didn't know what this guy was going to say. So that guy, the, the guy that had taken his life, his mother was right in 
front of me, so I tapped her on the shoulder and I said, this is so-and-so's best friend, he wants to talk, and she said, absolutely, he can talk. And so, so he gets up there and he gets in the pulpit. It was in a church um, or a funeral home, and, and then this guy did one of the craziest things I've ever seen in a funeral. It's not funny, but he, he, he stands there and it's, everything's so somber. And this guy grabs the side of the pulpit and he screams out at the casket, Pura Vida! And he says the guy's name and he screams it again. Pura Vida! And he looks up at us and he says, that means pure life. He said, that's what me, and he said his name, this will mean this guy experienced in Costa Rica, man. We moved to Costa Rica and he's preaching this. Because we, we went to Costa Rica and we served and we had senoritas and margaritas. He said that. We experienced pure life. And he looks down and he says his friend's name. Pure Vida, brother. And he walks off. And then I walk back up to the pulpit. And church, I got a little bit of Old Testament prophet in me. It's just a little bit in there. (laughs) And I was in a dilemma. Because one, I wanted to not say anything at all that was going to be disrespectful or distasteful or dishonoring to this guy's mother or father. But then I just heard one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in my entire life. And I literally, I I just stood there like this for what felt like an hour. Probably about 10 seconds. And I wanted so bad. And it took everything in my power not to say, if pure life is found in senoritas and margaritas, then why is this guy laying here right now? But I didn't. And I just prayed and dismissed everybody. Church, here's the thing. I'm not, I'm not promising you that if you follow Jesus, that if you give your life to Christ today, that your life's going to be easy. I'm not promising you that. I can't promise you that. I'm not promising you that if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and you walk out those doors and you start loving your neighbor, you start having compassion on the people around you, that life's going to turn out the way you want, but I can promise you this, that life is not found in Costa Rica. It can be found there, but it is not found in Costa Rica. Life is not found in senoritas and margaritas, and life is not found in money, and life's not found in kids and marriage and a good body. Life is actually not found in anything on this planet. Pure life is found in loving God. And loving the people around you. And everything else is just an unsatisfying substitute. You will never find true life until you are living for what you were created to live for. And one of the things that I've been praying for you over the last couple months, it kind of hit me this summer. And I started praying this for our church. Is that for the season that God has you at the Austin Stone for college students, whether it's just a couple of years or whether... If you're here and you're a young professional and you work here for a while and move on or whether you're a family that stays for, for a long time, one of the things I've been specifically praying for you is that your time at the Austin Stone, as you look back on it in your life, you would look back on that time as a time that was one of the sweetest, uh, greatest times of growth in, with your walk with Jesus of your entire life. And that the reason that that happened and the reason that 
that you could say this was such a sweet time of growth in my life is because it was the time that you realized I was created to love God and I was created to love people. And you waded into that story that was created for you from the foundation of the world. All right, let's pray together. Father, I thank you today. that our stories are not accidents. And I, I have a feeling that there's people in the room right now that are they're probably thinking, well, you're telling me I went through this and God shaped and formed and fashioned that. I, I pray even on, that you would show them your love in those days and that you were forming them and shaping them and molding them into the woman and the man that you ultimately wanted them to be. And that we don't become the poems of God by ease or comfort. But we become the poems of God by just trusting that your hand is on us, that you're sovereign, that you're Lord, and that you're in control. God, we love you. I pray that there would be a lot of hope that is found today in these verses. That we're not alone in this world, that, that you've known us from before we were ever born and that you've formed and you've shaped us and that you're our God and that you're with us. And if you're with us then, you're with us now and you will always be with us. And we would surrender and trust and love you. God, I praise you today. I, I pray that um, as we sing to you, that we would worship you because you are worthy of our worship and we would sing and worship you today because of the truth that we've seen in the scripture. And we love you, Lord. We praise you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand together. Let's sing this song to him.